0: History must be rewritten for every generation. For although the past does not change, the present does. The facts do not, the present does. For each generation, ask new questions of the past. Christopher Hill Mahatma Gandhi and Winston Churchill both found themselves fighting against the Boer Afrikaners in South Africa during the Second Boer War. This was at a time when they were both relatively unknown, They have since become immortalized by their respective nations, India and the United Kingdom. You can think of them like how we Americans think of Abraham Lincoln. Not only a statesman, but a great man. Those who rose during the most perilous times and saved their countries. However, not everyone has a positive view of these great men. On June 13, 2016, former Indian President Pranab Mukherjee gave a gift to the country of Ghana in Africa to celebrate indian ghanaian friendship. Within two weeks, the hashtag, Gandhi must fall, went viral, and the statue was taken down as quickly and quietly as it was erected. This, to an Indian, who grew up hearing about the great Mahatma, or the great-souled one, would probably come off as rather offensive. Gandhi called us kafirs, one degree more than animals and savages. He knew and understood the meaning of those terms, but still used them. Senior Research Fellow, Dr. Obadele Kambon, told the Indian Express, adding that such a leader's statue should not find a place anywhere in Africa. Gandhi, who grew up as a young man in South Africa, came to prominence there. He refused to comply with racial segregation rules and began protesting for Indian rights. Gandhi fought for Indians to be treated equal, equal to white Europeans of the British Empire he and his people found themselves a part of. Winston Churchill, since these times, has also faced scrutiny for his actions, often by the descendants of those Gandhi fought for. Indians, both in South Africa, India, and abroad. Later in his life, while Churchill was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and dogmatically facing down Hitler. We shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, if necessary, alone. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. And in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Churchill controversially allowed for a famine to occur in Bengal, which was a part of the British colonial empire in India. It led to the deaths of three million people. Historians usually characterize the famine as anthropogenic, man-made, asserting that wartime colonial policies created and then exacerbated the crisis. A minority view holds, however, that the famine was the result of natural causes, Churchill is consistently ranked as the greatest British prime minister of all time, and during the George Floyd protests, a hashtag must fall began creeping around the internet. Around the same time, a statue of Abraham Lincoln, often considered the greatest American statesman, the president who freed the slaves, was taken down after an intense debate. The statue, which was located in Park Square, Boston, showed a formerly enslaved man kneeling at Lincoln's feet with the words, Emancipation, scrolled below. South Africa has produced two great men of history, Nelson Mandela and Jan Smuts. The former has been written about and immortalized by the world. The latter has been written out of history. Ironically, the two came at odds with one another. Mandela has been idealized as the man who ended apartheid. Smuts has been accused by posterity of creating apartheid. Richard Stein. Jan Smuts is probably a name you haven't heard of before. He was not only a South African great man, he was an intellectual, an intellectual, often regarded as one of Cambridge's best law student ever. Einstein considered Smuts one of the few dozen or so people who could comprehend his theory of relativity. He also created the philosophy of holism, where he attempted, rather ambitiously, to explain the universe. The theory has been applied to many sciences, including psychology, where it could best be understood as trying to understand the issues of a person by viewing their issues as a whole, rather than breaking them down into separate parts. Smuts seems to me like the South African Winston Churchill. He lived an amazing life. He started his military career as a Boer Afrikaner, fighting against the British. Later, he fought against the Germans in both world wars, for the British crown. Rising eventually to the rank of British Field Marshal and South African Prime Minister, Smuts signed the UN Charter, a champion of human rights, and was the only signer of the Treaty of Versailles to do so. He was instrumental in creating the Royal Air Force. He served on two British war cabinets. He was also instrumental in creating the Union of South Africa. And on the more controversial side, he was instrumental in the creation of apartheid. The ANC today know him as a segregationist, a black stain on his reputation. Many South Africans don't even know who he is. In a similar light to maybe someone like Theodore Roosevelt, who to quote Dan Carlin, would have made Archie Bunker scream from his racism However, he was a liberal for the time on the topic of race. When you get to understand the mind of Jan Smuts, it's difficult to put him in a closed-minded, ignorant category. He was a liberal for the time on the topic of race. He believed that apartheid, or rather separation of the races, was a necessary evil. But South Africa would eventually evolve away from it. In 1925, at the Imperial Conference hosted by Great Britain, he said, If there was to be equal manhood suffrage over the Union, The whites would surely be swamped by the blacks. A distinction could not be made between Indians and Africans. They would be impelled by the inevitable force of logic to go the whole hawk, and not only would the whites be swamped in Natal by the Indians, but the whites would be swamped all over South Africa by the blacks and the whole position for which the whites had striven for more than 200 years or more now would be given up. So far as South Africa was concerned, it was a question of impossibility For white South Africans, it was not a question of dignity, but a question of existence. Smuts always regarded non-white South Africans as South Africans. He believed apartheid would end with time, but the time was not now. He was a liberal compared to the standard white South African, especially the Afrikaner of the day. Smuts called apartheid a crazy concept born out of fear. But that doesn't matter. Smuts, due to the extremes of South African society, has been all but written out of history. In America, this will come as a shock to many. We have the advantage of being less sensitive about race. Where a small portion of our population was oppressed and systematically disadvantaged, in South Africa, the majority was oppressed and disadvantaged. Due to this extreme, a man as great as Smuts is confined to having his name replaced on streets and rather harshly, all but lost to history in the country he was instrumental in creating, defending and loved. Jan Smuts first came to prominence fighting for the Boer Afrikaners against the British crown in the Second Boer War. He, along with his superior commander and lifelong friend, Louis Botha, decided to ambush a British train. On the train was a relatively unknown British war correspondent named Winston Churchill. The two interrogated Churchill, who tried to get released as he was just a war correspondent. Churchill was taken to a school, turned into a military prison in Pretoria, where he was kept for a year. One day, when the guards were distracted, he jumped the fence. He managed to sneak onto a cargo train. Eventually, he had to jump off because he was dying of dehydration. Churchill walked to a cottage, which, by luck, happened to be the only British-owned cottage in the region, owned by a mining engineer, who agreed to hide the young war correspondent. With the help of the mining engineer, he was able to board a train to Portuguese East Africa, modern-day Mozambique. Churchill recalled first meeting Jan Smuts. I remember when we met. I was wet and dragotailed. Meaning he was wet and untidy. He was examining me on the part I had played in the affair on the armored train. A difficult moment. It was not the best first meeting, but eventually after the war, all three men formed intimate relationships. When Luis Botha died, Winston Churchill sent his friend, Jan Smuts, a letter saying, He was one of the truly greatest men in the world, and thank God, of the British Empire. Churchill confided in Smuts deeply during the Second World War. Many commented that he saw Smuts as his superior intellectually, the only person whom Churchill would allow himself to be counseled by, referring to Smuts as the modern Socrates. Churchill later wrote of Smuts, An altogether extraordinary man, From the outer marches of the Empire. Smuts' story would fill all the acts and scenes of a drama. He has warred against us. Well, we know it. Smuts has quelled rebellion against our own flag. With unswerving loyalty and unfailing shrewdness. He has led raids at desperate odds. And conquered provinces by scientific strategy. His astonishing career. His versatile achievements. ...are the only index of a profound sagacity and a cool, far-reaching comprehension. After the Second Boer War, Botha and Smuts were present in the negotiations of the Treaty of Vereeniging. The conditions of the treaty were that all Boer republics would swear allegiance to the British crown. Amnesty would be given and Dutch would be allowed in school and law courts. Smuts and Botha both became loyal subjects of the British crown after the Second Boer War. They were grateful to the British for getting self-governance... However, Afrikaners never forgave the British for the concentration camps and atrocities they faced, leading to a deep divide within white South Africa. Remember, almost 30,000 Boers died in British concentration camps, 80% of them children. The Afrikaners, who were famous for fighting against the native black tribes and living a cowboy-like existence on wagons and farms on the exteriors of society, developed a deep isolationist policy that has existed in the Afrikaner mindset to this day. The Boer Afrikaners, being Dutch descendants, found themselves more pro-German rather than pro-British. The Germans shared a linguistic similarity, cultural similarities, and especially during the political movements of the 1930s and 40s, shared segregationist and white supremacist ideologies. The stains of the Second Boer War were never properly healed, and a deep divide was created in the colony between the British English-speaking settlers and the Boer Afrikaner-speaking settlers. Both Luis Botha, who would later go on to become the first Prime Minister of the Union of South Africa, and Jan Smuts, would be seen as traitors to their people, the Afrikaners. In 1910, with the unification of four independent separate colonies, the Cape, the Natal, the Transvaal, and the Orange River, Uni Suite afrika or the Union of South Africa, was created as a centralized self-governing dominion of the British Empire. Even before the creation of the Union of South Africa, the white minority was stripping the other factions of the state's power away. In 1896, the South African Republic brought in two pass laws requiring non whites of South Africa to carry a badge. In 1905, the General Pass Regulations Act denied blacks the right to vote and limited them to fixed areas. And in 1906, the Asiatic Registration Act of the Transvaal Colony required all Indians to register and carry passes. The latter was repealed by the British government, but re-enacted again in 1908. When it was created in 1910, the Union of South Africa gave enfranchisement to whites, giving them complete political control over all other racial groups, while removing the rights of non-whites to sit in parliament. Around this time, a man named Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi was making a name for himself, standing up for the rights of the rather large Indian minority of the Union of South Africa. The majority of Indians, even to this day, are located in Durban. Gandhi arrived as a young lawyer at the age of 24, seeking to help an Indian client in court. He was profoundly offended at the high levels of racism he oversaw in South Africa. Both in London, where he studied, and India, racism was more subtle. The whites called Gandhi the Cooley Barrister. Cooley is a racial slur for Indians in South Africa. It, similarly to the N-word, has been taken back by modern Indians. In modern Indian popular culture, coolies have often been portrayed as working-class heroes or anti-heroes. One day, Gandhi booked a first-class ticket to Johannesburg from his province of Durban. A white man refused to share the compartment with a darkie, and demanded he move to third class. Gandhi protested, and was thrown out of the train. This moved Gandhi. Originally, he was there only temporarily to help his client. This act changed him, however, and he refused to return to India He would suffer in the name of bringing justice and equality to the Indians of South Africa. The key word is the Indians of South Africa. One of the interesting anthropological and sociological things about humans is how tribal we can be. With whites being the oppressor, you would think the Indians, colored, native blacks, would all rise up together to fight the injustice. It was, after all, the Indians who were the slaves and indentured servants of the whites of South Africa, not the native blacks. This, however, didn't happen. Cecil Rhodes former Cape Colony Prime Minister, mining magnate, an ardent believer in British imperialism, had a slogan, Equal rights for all civilized men. Civilized men, which can be interpreted differently. When the South African government implemented a bill revoking Indians of participation in parliament, Gandhi said, The bill would rank the Indian lower than the rawest native. Indians, in an attempt to protect their own position, believed they had to separate themselves from the native blacks, They wanted to present themselves with their long cultural heritage as among the civilized peoples. In their view, the blacks were not civilized. They were raw. Gandhi's earliest statements about Africans show a great sense of distance from them. Speaking in Bombay, after three years in Africa, he told his audience, Ours is a continental struggle against a degradation sought to be inflicted upon us by the Europeans, who desire to degrade us to the level of the raw kaffir, whose occupation is hunting and whose sole ambition is to collect a certain number of cattle to buy a wife with, and then pass his life in indolence and nakedness. In 1904, he wrote to a health officer in Johannesburg that the council must withdraw kaffirs from an unsanitary slum called the Cooley Location, where a large number of Africans lived alongside Indians. About the mixing of kaffirs with the Indians, I must confess I feel most strongly The same year, he wrote that unlike the African, the Indian had no war dances, nor does he drink coffee or beer. When Durban was hit by a plague in 1905, Gandhi wrote that the problem would persist as long as Indians and Africans were being herded together indiscriminately at the hospital. One of the first achievements of the Natal Indian Congress, which Gandhi established, was the creation of a third separate entrance to the Durban post office. The first was for whites, but previously Indians had to share the second with the blacks. Though they would have preferred to enter with the whites, they were satisfied with achieving a triple segregation. Even when Gandhi was famously sent to prison for his protests, he complained Indians had to share jail cells with Native Africans. He experienced some physical abuse and admitted fear of more while in prison with them. Gandhi today is a hero to Indians, and before he is judged too harshly, it should be noted that just a few decades before this time... A man from Illinois was running for Senate and in a series of debates he was pressed upon the issue of emancipation for the blacks of America. During these debates on September 18th 1858 Lincoln made his position clear. I will say then that I am not nor have I ever been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. He began going on to say that he opposed black people having the right to vote to serve on juries to hold offices, and to intermarry with whites. Lincoln's position on social and political equality for African Americans would evolve over the course of his presidency. In the last speech of his life, delivered on April 11, 1865, he argued for limited black suffrage, saying that any black man who served the Union during the Civil War should have the right to vote. Gandhi's position on race also evolved with time. In August 1906, the Asiatic Law Amendment Ordinance was signed into law in the Transvaal. It was a humiliating and discriminating law forcing Indians in the Transvaal to register with a register of the Asiatics, submit to physical examinations, provide fingerprints, and carry a registration certificate at all times. Gandhi replied by saying, I shall die but not submit to the anti-Asiatic law. It was here that Gandhi developed his ideology of passive resistance, or Satyagraha. This ideology has gone on to influence some of the greatest minds, from all over the political spectrum. Just a few of the people who have listed Gandhi, or Satyagraha, as influencing them. Ho Chi Minh, Richard Attenborough, Will Durant, Martin Luther King Jr., Albert Einstein, and of course, Nelson Mandela. Indians led by Gandhi responded with the Asiatic law by marching and answering with Satyagraha. Gandhi was arrested. General Smuts promised to repeal the act. Gandhi and his colleagues were released from jail. However, Smuts went back on his word and re-implemented the act a few years later. Gandhi and his crew went back and began protesting peacefully. After 21 years of struggle in South Africa, Gandhi felt he had accomplished what he came to do. Indians, who were originally brought to South Africa as slaves had achieved more rights thanks to Gandhi's work. The government conceded the recognition of Indian marriages and the abolition of the poll tax for Indians. Although Gandhi and Smuts were adversaries in many ways, they had a mutual respect and even admiration for each other. Before Gandhi returned to India in 1914, he presented General Smuts with a pair of sandals, now held by Titsong National Museum of Culture and History, made by Gandhi himself. In 1939, Smuts' then-Prime Minister wrote an essay for a commemorative work compiled for Gandhi's 70th birthday, and returned the sandals with the following message. I have worn these sandals for many a summer, even though I may feel that I am not worthy to stand in the shoes of so great a man. It wasn't just the Indians who were marching for justice and equality. In 1912, the African National Congress, the ANC, was created. In direct response to the injustices against black South Africans at the hands of the government in power, The Native Land Act of 1913 created a true apartheid state, the creation of the Bantustan system. Bantustans were native lands given to the Black African natives of the territory of South Africa. It amounted to a mere 8% of the land. It was later expanded, very generously, to 13% years later. Natives overnight saw their lands dispossessed from them. They were shipped off and forced onto poor districts of low-quality land. The goal of the Land Act was to force Native Africans into subjugation, to mobilize them as laborers, miners, and farmers. It destroyed blacks, made them underpaid workers, and excluded them from receiving rights. Prime Minister Botha thought it would be good to reduce crime and racial tension, leading to heated debates about land expropriation years later. Botha believed blacks should exercise their rights on Bantu stands. The Act decreed that natives were not allowed to buy land from whites and vice versa. Exceptions had to be approved by the Governor-General. The act further prohibited the practice of serfdom and sharecropping. It also protected existing agreements or arrangements of land hired or leased by both parties. This land was in native reserve areas, which meant it was under communal tenure, vested in African chiefs. It could not be bought, sold, or used as surety. Outside such areas, perhaps of even greater significance for black farming, was that the act forbade black tenants farming on white-owned land. Since so many black farmers were sharecroppers or labor tenants, that had a devastating effect, but its full implementation was not immediate. The act strengthened the chiefs, who were part of a state administration, but it forced many blacks into white areas into wage labor. The Native Land Act of 1913 was overshadowed, however, by the Great War. South Africa seems rather inconsequentially far from the European nightmare that was World War I. This is true. But during the scramble for Africa, Germany took a land which would become integral to both South Africa and the apartheid state, German Southwest Africa, today known as Namibia. Many Boer settlers during the first and second Boer Wars had gone to Namibia as well as the Orange Free State and the Transvaal. They set up settlements and their own apartheid states. At the outbreak of the Great War, South Africa was required to join as the dominion of the British Empire. Prime Minister Louis Botha informed London that South Africa could defend itself and that the imperial garrison could depart for France. When the British government asked Botha whether his forces would invade German Southwest Africa, the reply was that they could and would.